welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the show dedicated to stories told through the medium of sound, showcasing the diversity and vitality of modern audio theater. You're here news, reviews, discussion, and of course, stories. And I'm your host, Fred. And if you notice something a little, I don't know, a little more musical about the beginning of the show, that is because we now have a theme courtesy of the illustrious Roger Gregg. Thank you, Roger. Uh, Today, we continue with our series featuring audio pros, and I'm particularly excited to share with you my interview with today's guest, Tony Palermo. Many of you probably first encountered Tony through his incredible website, ruyasonic.com, R-U-Y-A, sonic.com. It's where I, for one, started my journey learning about this excellent medium and how to work in radio drama, and I actually still use his script template today. It's excellent. Um, If you haven't heard of him, well, he is guy you need to hear. He's a virtuoso sound man. He's on t- par with anyone in the country in the area of live sound effects, and he's capable of doing uh, any other radio drama role as well. has great ideas on his website about doing uh, quick workshops and um, other ideas on getting your own radio drama group start- started. Um, he has an unrivaled ability to use sound to conjure imagination, and you'll be able to hear that with this short piece, Lie With Me, followed by the interview. Hope you enjoy. And now let's tap the cell phones of Lindsay Ellison and Tony Palermo in Lie With Me, where it's not only the truth that hurts. Howdy, Martha. Lying again, George. This isn't hello. It's really goodbye, isn't it? What? That's all you do, George. You lie. I've heard them all. I've even numbered all your lies. That howdy of yours is lie number 35. What are you talking about? I I just called to say I'm sorry I'm late. (laughs) Lie number 12. Huh? I'm not late? No, you're not sorry. That's lie number 12. Hey, I don't deserve this kind of treatment, Martha. 178. Jesus. Five. You're doing this because you like your relationships to have a complexity to them. It adds charm. No, this isn't complex. Uh, Martha, lie number 17. Hey, that's not... Fair. 32. You wrote me off, so now you won't believe anything I say. And that can't be. I'm about to say something truthful. So you're doubting everything is you lying to yourself. Oh, I understand. Mm-mm. Lie number one, Martha. What? You like shutting me down because it makes you feel you're in control. Of what? A relationship. You feel certain. Which is a lie, of course. It is? You expect me to act a certain way, and then I don't. Is that a lie? Your dream just wasn't real. Well, then are dreams lies? Only if they don't come true. How can we make our dreams come true? Well, uh, you know, uh, if you believe in me, I could make your lies come true. George, how could I ever doubt you? Well, you should have. What? So you were lying to me? Well, yeah. Every word, in fact. You rotten manipulator! Wait, wait. Lies make the world go round. But that's good if you can figure the angles. What? You mean I should learn to live a lie? Yes, it's more fun that way. It depends on how good a liar you are. How much imagination... Well, imagination is what makes audio theater work. Well, yes, we're professional liars. We do audio theater, an art form that's entirely based on lies. 
We lie to the audience with each word, each setting, each sound effect. But is that wrong? Is that bad? No. You're saying that lies can be good, useful fictions. What matters is if we can convince ourselves about the lies we use. You're asking too much, George. Am I? Well, then I guess this really is goodbye, then. <laughs> 99, George. That is so 99. www.ruyasonic.com R-U-Y-A Sonic All right, and our guest today is Tony Palermo. He's a radio dramatist, performer, and educator based in Los Angeles, California, with a dazzling set of credits under his belt. Uh, his work's been heard on NPR, XM Satellite Radio, in audiobooks, on stage. Uh, he's worked with LA Theater Works, California Artists Radio Theater, numerous theater troops on national tours. Um, his sound effects were heard on Yuri Rosovsky's Sherlock Holmes Theater, a piece that did win the Audi Award, and he runs an amazing website with resources on the craft and art of audio drama at ruyasonic.com, R-U-Y-A sonic.com. Uh, Tony, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. Hi, how are you doing? It's great to have you today, Tony, and uh, that I gave you sort of a brief bio, but could you sort of mention a little bit in a snapshot version uh, what your career is, what you do, and then a little bit about what got you into radio? Okay, well, yes, see, um... I'm a jack-of-all-trades in radio. Uh, that includes uh, writing, directing, producing, engineering, uh, composing the scores and that, and sound effects. I tend to specialize in sound effects because there's a lot of work out there uh, doing that. I've been in Los Angeles for about 30 years, and um, I've worked in television and in features. Uh, radio, I particularly like working in because uh, you can do anything for nothing. And um, you're, you, a great variety of ideas and scripts and stories can be produced quickly. Yeah, and so uh, you know, one of the big things I want to touch on today is technology. And you know, obviously, um, television has changed a lot since uh, you, you got into this. How has radio changed? What What is what you're doing now? Um, the way that people approach it a little different than it was, uh, say, ten, twenty years ago, even. Well, we went, went from tape uh, to digital, and that made a big difference in the speed with which things can be done. Uh, being able to, to edit visually, looking at a waveform on a computer screen, and knowing, okay, here's the slam, and wait, let me just jockey this track uh, over a bit, and it'll sound better if we can start this uh, musical track to come in, and now here we're going to creep in. It just, it's so much uh, simpler, but it can take longer. It, it's akin to when you used to write by longhand, and then you went to the, the uh, typewriter, and then when you went to the word processor. So it got both easier and longer. <laughs> and you can spend uh, eons in uh, post-production tweaking things. Right, because now um, the, the, the way you write it down initially doesn't have to be perfect, so now um, the ability to change it more means that people will change it more as opposed to just being happier um, how it came out the first time. Yes, if, if you want to go and do that. However... Um, regardless of the technological capabilities of being able to do so much in post, um, I've honed my craft by doing it live in real time. Uh, my mentors uh, come from old-time old radio, the golden age in the, from the 30s to the 60s, and they perfected doing these things live over the air. And as such, you had to really have your 
your your stuff together, uh, the style of production was able to be more lifelike, more like a movie in real time than a play, since we could be so imaginative with the sounds and with the music and with so many scenes that can be done. So I found that by working in an older style, this live real-time production, um, to get as much as you can uh, done right to the note, uh, then uh, coming and tweaking it what little bits you need to uh, that's the best way to do that because uh, creatively you're getting uh, a cohesiveness in the performances, and at the same time um, you're able to do to, to work quickly and to and economically and get your program out. And and who are the people who are you know since you do so much work that's alive? Um, who, who are the people who are interested in having this kind of work done? Like is it? Uh, are there radio drama groups? I know there's, like, for example, Los Angeles Theatre Works, who does a lot of work. Are there other kinds of groups or organizations that want to see um, a, a live radio production? Oh, uh, oh, yes, very much so. And depending upon the kind of material that you're going to do, uh, the audience is essential. Uh, in, in the 30s and that, they tried putting Bob Hope and Jack Benny in a studio, and they flopped uh, because they didn't have an audience to feed off as to what's funny. Uh, actors in front of a microphone are very different from actors in front of a, 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 a camera or actors in front of an audience. They, they, they really come alive when they know that they're being watched. And it's something that's actually sort of lost in the studio. And it, there's also the economics of it. Nowadays, uh, considering that the, uh, the costs have to be amortized for your production. So if you're Garrison Keillor, um, you're going to go ahead and sell 18,000 uh, tickets to see him at some big amphitheater. Um, that will pay for all of your production and everybody that you've got, and then it's just gravy putting it on the air. And that's what we do at L.A. Theater Works. Um, I've been doing shows with them for about five years, and we, um, we subsidize our productions by charging $40 a ticket. Uh, to, we have about 350 seats in this marvelous theater in Los Angeles, the Skirball Cultural Center. We do five performances a week. We record all five and then piece together from the best uh, scenes or the best takes uh, that show, and it goes out over the air and into um, audiobooks and into the library down distribution system. So you can pay for your production by doing it live. And after that, then distribution is um, it, it isn't essential to get your show uh, to sell a lot of units because you're already in the black uh, by the time uh, that you've uh, <laughs> finished and said, thank you and good night. Cool. <laughs> Fascinating. Uh, I'd love to t touch on that because I, I think it's an interesting question because you are doing something live that ultimately will be served on demand, which, uh, of course, is the name of the game with, with modern um, uh, digital distribution of, t uh, of art. Um, but let me ask you another question. Uh, from a producer's standpoint, or at least from the sound effects guy's standpoint, or whatever role you'll be, how does knowing that it's going to be staged live affect how you're how you go about approaching the production. Obviously, you, you, do th you must even look at the script differently than if it was knowing that you're going to do it in the studio versus knowing you're going to do it live. Well, it, it actually helps uh, with the actors because they're used to audiences. Uh, actors come from stage. Uh, even if we get them, uh, movie stars and television stars, uh, to appear in our, in our productions, and we get a lot of them at, at LA Theater Works, the, um, they're used to having that. And when you take and put them in the studio, um, they often lose their moorings. They don't know where they are. I see in the course of 
uh, going through rehearsals. We, we rehearse for about um, two days, and then we go and do uh, five live uh, shows, one each day for five days. And the progression as to how they gain their confidence, and once the audience is there and they can feel, uh, this is good, I'll wait for this bit, I'll deliver this, and here we go. So it, it's actually easier for the, uh, for the actors. Uh, the other considerations that we have have to do with doubling, which is a very common thing to do in radio. Uh, but if you have doubling uh, on stage, you've got to be careful that the audience can understand uh, that this actor is playing. Uh, he was the angry slave owner, and now he's the kindly judge. Right. And uh, if they are confused about that, uh, you're going to run into trouble um, in their own perception. So we, we do tend to cater for things. We we know what pleases audiences. Um, they're fascinated by seeing radio drama done. It's a different form of theater. It's a far more imaginative theater than even you know, Phantom of the Opera or uh, most uh, types of, uh, of stage plays, dramas that they're seeing as opposed to musicals. And so we can uh, set scenes anywhere, and we can have very, very many scene changes. Usually in a, in a typical play, you might have seven or eight scenes, uh, whereas in a typical radio play, you could have 40. Right. Uh, and so they find it, um, they're, they're, there's what I call the wink going on with live audiences. Uh, they are drawn into the pretense that we are doing. And when they see the sound effects artist doing things, or if they see the actor walk up and um, grab his piece of paper and begin, you know, now he's um, Galileo, uh, they know that they're not seeing it for real, that there isn't the costume and the set and everything, but their mind is saying, oh, yes, it is. And so it's working on two levels. It's sort of like a close-up magic. You... Basically, uh, the magician comes up and you say, okay, fool me, right in front of my eyes. And that's exactly what we do. Oh. Uh, and, and they love it. They love being fooled. And if we are smart in our, in, in our craft, we deliver things that they will certainly enjoy. There's a conspiratorial aspect to the live audience. They can see that I am actually uh, using an umbrella uh, for the uh, pterodactyls of the lost world or something like that. And they, they, they're now inside. They're in on the joke. They're with me in putting something over on the listening audience. And they love being empowered that way. Oh, brilliant. Uh, so that, that is a really interesting point because in, in some ways, uh, you know, uh, the digital revolution doesn't affect that experience. I mean, the, the techniques that you're using you, you maybe have better microphones than than they did in the golden age, but oh no, we um, don't. No, <laughs> no. They had so ribbon, so they, really, no, they, they had ribbon microphones, and we don't generally work with ribbons. Yeah. Uh, we work with um, and, um, theater works with, works with condenser mics, mm -hmm. which I wouldn't recommend for um, live radio on stage productions. They're just far too sensitive. We can hear grandma unwrapping her her tums and and uh, <clears throat> somebody coughing at the back of the theater. Those condensers are a little too uh, sensitive. Um, yeah, but so essentially you are, uh, so essentially the technology, at least for within the, the purposes of you in that, um, in that auditorium, putting on the show and your interaction with the audience, that experience has not really changed um, in the last 50 years. Um, except that we do serious drama 
in front of a live audience, which is very different from what it was in the Golden Age. Generally, comedy shows would be done, comedy and variety would be done with an audience. Like I said, that, that Bob Hope and Jack Benny and, and Fred Allen needed that feedback of the audience. The sponsors also needed that feedback. Is, is that joke funny? The audience was laughing. Oh, all right, it's funny. Then we paid, we paid for the right show. Right. Right. Um, the audiences for uh, almost everything nowadays uh, that we produce, which is mostly serious stuff with humorous bits in it, um, they're watching real, real drama. So we're more like uh, plays that have been recorded uh, with sound effects. And of course, that's what LA Theater Works does. They're 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 different than radio trips. They do not do old old-time radio. They do not do new-time radio. They record plays, Broadway plays, and other uh, dramas, modern dramas and classics, um, which are a different animal than a typical radio show with, with uh, a very imaginative canvas. Um, so there's a bit of, it's, it's different in that you're doing serious works live. So, of course, you know, you're having this experience with the live audience in this theater, um, but then you do have the finished work, and that goes out, and now, of course, it, it can go out online, it can go out if they cho- choose to as a podcast, of course, there's CDs, uh, and a lot more different means that people can enjoy this work um, as the distribution technology um, is kind of changing. And as someone, of course, who works so much in audio and is so passionate about audio, um, what, what is your take on what's happening and uh, where we're headed? Radio is an intimate art, and it appears that um, it's being facilitated by people having a more intimate experience with it. Uh, the thing about about distribution is that it's unchanging, uh, regardless of the, the means that we use to get there, whether it is a stage audience um, over the air, uh, over your iPod, or on a CD. Start with a whisper. Somebody tells you something. Hey, did you hear about Mary? What? Okay, that kind of gossip thing. Now, the distance from the mouth to the ear is what matters. That's the thing that makes the difference in distribution. For radio, where do people listen to it? You have to start with the audience before you actually get to the art. Where most people listen to radio drama will be uh, in the car, uh, over uh, earbuds, or maybe in the kitchen or while they're uh, in the shop or doing something. They're generally often multitasking. Uh, They're doing something with their eyes and with their body while their mind is going on a little trip. This gossip is coming along. So that distance... um, is facilitated by the newer technologies where we are now super narrow casting to an individual listener. And so the content is, doesn't matter what it is. All right, There's, that's the message. Uh, the medium will make a difference in how that is going to be perceived. But you're basically asking people to um, escape, and they do that through, uh, through the headphones or the or, or the, the the radio, there's more opportunity, and it's easier for products to be distributed now, which is both a blessing and a curse. Uh, it's a blessing in that it has greatly lowered the cost distribution for um, all types of media. 
so that you can have, um, uh, you know, a, a bedroom studio production that can compete with some massive, you know, uh, uh, theatrical production, right? People can, can, can access both of them easily, at least now at this point, before the, the, the gatekeepers uh, figure out what's happening and find a way to, uh, to exclude or, or marginalize uh, small-time productions and, and that. With those, those cost savings, uh, that's uh, that's great. That that's one of the the promotions, and that lots of people can be heard. There's a democratization that has occurred uh, through uh, the internet. It's a it's a, it's a Gutenberg style um, revolution mm-hmm. in that it frees up content and it provides uh, people with the ability to personalize uh, their consumption. I love science fiction, and now I can eat science fiction day and night. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, my uh, one of my teenage daughters is a fan of any kind of gossip, and so all the gossipy uh, programs and books and uh, shows and stuff that are on, um, she can consume those nonstop. Uh, that's great if you love to produce gossip or you love to produce science fiction. You have a much uh, you have a ready audience, uh, and of course, it's a worldwide audience. Or at least you're only limited by language as to how large your audience can be. However, there's, there's a downside to that in that uh, there's no longer a mass audience. That is something that there never really was, uh, except for maybe a, for about a, the last 100 years. And now we've sort of returned to a pre-mass audience. It's like we went from uh, broadcasting, okay, so that one source, one to many relationship, to now it's the uh, what they call the, the narrow casting or niche casting. Um, that's good for producers of niche-like products. I'm really into audio porn for truck drivers, right. which I think would be actually a very uh, lucrative field to get into. Mm-hmm. Um, you can go ahead and fill that niche. And uh, you can even find a way to monetize it. You don't have to produce something that appeals to everybody. And that's something that's unique to this age in that we have gone from a very restricted uh, number of gatekeepers, uh, the movie studios, the TV uh, networks, uh, the radio outlets, uh, the audiobook publishers, to a completely wide open um, marketplace. And that's good, but with the loss of the mass audience, now the economic model is is uh, severely uh, hampered. If you can work cheaply enough, which audio drama is one of the cheapest art forms to work in, um, you can possibly survive. We, we've come into an age now where spectacle is what uh, is the only thing that unites us. Uh, an Olympics a presidential election, a, um, a, a human sacrifice show like uh, all of the, the American Idol and all of the other game shows and that, uh, or 9-11. Uh, in all of those, that's the only thing that really unites the mass audience anymore. Otherwise, we're all off in lotus land uh, working on our own things. My own little mix list, my own uh, social network, my own little uh, Twitter feeds back and forth to people. And so the audience has shrunk tremendously. And as it has, we sort of shatter a collectivism that, that, that the 20th century saw. 
and we're sort of going back into a, a more of a, a tribal area, uh, which is going to be very interesting culturally. You know, and, and one thing that it, it definitely fascinates me about this question, uh, Tony, is the economic model. You mentioned how it's going to be important for people to be able to produce work cheaply, you know, because the audience, you, you know, that, that pop single is, is now going to be a pop to, you know, a much smaller audience. But then at the same yep. time, that yep. that bizarre sitar track with 17 drums in the background suddenly has an audience that didn't exist before. Um, yep. so, so that does open a, poss- a possibility for audio drama to be in this world, um, but also a lot of problems for you know, those broadcasters who I think are, are having you know, th- these kinds of discussions and having a really hard time dealing with this brave new world. Um, among them, of course, is um, the XM radio, Sirius radio, the satellite radio phenomenon. Um, and do you, wanna, do, you wanna, do you have some thoughts on that? Do you, do you want to talk a little bit about what you think's gone wrong with satellite radio? Yes. Um, satellite radio is just sort of a poster child for a, a top-down uh, broadcasting uh, model. And it's um, amazing the amount of money that has been poured down that hole. Um, I, when they proposed it, I said, sounds interesting, but I'm sorry, the Internet happened. Hello? Um, they've not made a dime in all... 12 years of existence uh, for those, even before they started up and everything. And they won't. And they'll be dead and gone. Um, it's a... Yeah, they were building a, a train station when we've got airliners like night floating all over the place. <laughs> it was that they were fighting the wrong war uh, with, with uh, XM. The idea of a linear-based programming service is over. And by linear, I mean uh, real-time. That they cannot compete with on-demand. And the on-demand is everything from a a cell phone call, right, from your spouse to um, books on tape and uh, really anything that's, that's going on. They seriously miscalculated that a top-down model would serve an audience that continues to fragment and will continue to decentralize. Well, yeah, I, I felt like they, they made a lot of fundamental mistakes in trying to be radio, you know, commercial radio without ads, yet commercial radio, I think, only stuck around so long because that, that it was just convenient. Yeah. Uh, well, they were, they were sort of cable. Yeah. Their model was cable. Uh, subscriptions, um, which uh, that was about all they had going for them. When they began, I was pitched uh, or called in by Sirius to pitch, you would love this one, it was a uh, 10 hours a week of live drama for kids. It was a two-hour block that would start at 3.30, run till 5.30, and they asked me, how can we do this? What it is is we need an excuse for kids to pester their folks to buy these units and stick them in their cars. And so, classical Zuppi, uh, Zuppo, um, Klasky Zuppo, they're the, the, the Rugrat people, the wild thornberries, uh, right? They came and had me come in and said, we would like to produce a show that would go on and would attract all these kids and force this pressure to expand. Uh, we will take, like, the SpongeBob concept and we'll, we'll put it out there. 
And so they wanted to be able to produce 10 hours of programming a week. And they called on me to, uh, to take a look at this. And I said, my God, I'm going to have to invent um, CBS, a Mutual, NBC, and the BBC. I would have to hire everybody I would know in order to produce um, this much material to fit for it. But uh, the folks at Klasky Supo were no idiots. They said, look, um, how much they charge a prescription? I think it's about $10, $12. Okay. How many subscribers do they have? Uh, about, uh, what was it at that time? I don't know, three, 300000 something like that. It came to about uh, $3 million a month was what the, uh, the company was, uh, what, what their income was. And uh, Klasky Zupo said, um, look, if we were to do a half-hour show, we were trying to figure out how much money it would cost to produce a half-hour radio show of this kind of stuff. But we don't know about that. That's why we've asked you, Tony. We want you to tell us, how can we do this? We, we, we calculated it. We said, okay, if we were to take a Rugrats episode and subtract all of the money that we spend on having to do the animation, it would come to $22,000 per half hour of content. I said, yeah, I could do it for $22,000 a half hour. Sure. Well, of course, that's ridiculous because you wouldn't be able to, if you're producing 10 hours a week, we would eat up all of the $3 million uh, that, that, that was the entire in, in operating income uh, just to produce this, this, this kid's show. Right. And, and uh, they said, uh, we're not going to go here. This is, a, this is stupid. And it was. And so instead they hired uh, Howard Stern because um, that show has, like, other than paying for Howard, which, of course, they paid way too much, they, um, the production is zip. They were asking me, how can we fill 10 hours? I said, boy, you're going to be writing around the, the clock. Here's what I suggested to them. I said, let's set up some premises for these particular shows. It was something about, um, what was that, a girl who realizes she's an alien, um, something about some animals that are on, on a motorcycle traveling around the country, easy rider with pigs. Um, they had a bunch of these, and I said, here, we'll hire some improvisers. We'll set them up, because I, I do radio live uh, comedy improv with, with the liquid radio players here in Los Angeles. I said, hire these people, and you will not have to have writers or anything. It'll be hilarious, and we can clean it up and post as necessary. That just rocked them right off their walk. We would have enough control. I said, well, hire some really good improvisers, and we can go. But, but even then, it would still cost us some money to produce the thing. Even if it's just, okay, it's mics, it's a couple of sound effects and that, we could produce it really cheap. So, so yes, and so, uh, you know, as a corollary to that, if we were still back in the days of old time where, you know, there was CBS and, you know, NBC, and that's it, you know, and, and everybody was tuned in, then there did have, there was the attention that would merit all that live programming. But, but when, when there's... it was the only game in town, yes. Unfortunately, competition keeps getting bigger. The, the, the television networks, you know, back when uh, All in the Family uh, was on, it were the huge ratings, and then it declined a bunch as you got Cosby, and it declined a bunch as you got the Seinfeld, and whatever massive numbers that American Idol are able to pull in are, are minuscule compared to what it was in, this, in when there were only four networks, if you want to even consider uh, PBS to be a network. So the variety is going to kill the economics, the very thing that makes us rich, small-time uh, producers uh, with an ability to reach the audience, is going to make the pie that much smaller for everybody. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes, how cheaply can you produce? 
and this is this is it's a kind of uh, cultural globalization. Uh, if you take a look, what's happened in the economy once we've globalized? Right, it used to be we would make steel and cars and electronics and everything in the United States because we knew how to do it, we could do it, and it was local and shipping and stuff. Once shipping didn't really matter, everything could be made in Indonesia or in China, right? And all of these outsourcings to India for uh, have to take place in English uh, happened, and suddenly, poof, uh, no longer can U.S. Steel or Bethlehem Steel or Republic Steel right, or GM and the rest of those guys uh, afford uh, to work because the economics uh, don't support their profit model. No, now we're talking economics and radio. I'm sorry. <laughs> but that's what it is. Yeah. And if you don't see uh, the economy uh, behind what it is that you're is, you'll wind up uh, like AIG. Yeah. See, uh, here's what it is. We are in show business, but too many artists invest all of their imagination in the show and not in the business. Right. The idea is, um, to, to quote from the movie Field of Dreams, if I build it, they will come. Well, that's a ticket to Palookaville, yeah. because you, you can't just, if you don't do your homework on the business end, you aren't going to be in the art business unless it's some kind of free hobby. And of course, there's a tremendous amount, the whole YouTube experience is, is a free hobby kind of thing. And, and the problem that we're running into with newspapers and other media outlets right now is that they are unable to, uh, to, to compete with the variety that's out there. The newspapers are falling down. Uh, the movie studios, are, they don't realize it yet, but they're heading for the same doom. Right? That once things can come from anywhere, that the, 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 the gates are torn down, you're going to have to be very, very efficient at how you work. This is why I work live radio. The, the people who are successful, who are able to make this work, if you, in the United States, it's, it is like Garrison Keillor, and it is L.A. Theater Works. We're, we're ongoing, healthy concerns with an endless audience and endless reach. It's because our model is that we make our money on the front end, and then distribution is gravy. But we wouldn't even have to distribute these shows. They just, they happen to be, and they help to promote more live shows. You know, like, oh, look, Garrison Keillor's coming to town. Uh, I just put together a, a, a tour with John Delancey uh, for Theater Works of doing uh, War of the Worlds and the Lost World that toured all over the country and is touring right now as we speak. It might be in your town anytime. Interesting. Now, that raises a really interesting question. Now, I, I think a lot of, of listeners to this show are big fans of, of radio drama. Obviously, they want to hear uh, new work. But we also, I think, uh, reach an audience of people who are trying to figure out, you know, uh, maybe maybe have done a couple of shows of their own, uh, have, have done it a couple of times, are having fun with this. Um, as someone who, you know, obviously is, is really passionate about um, the art and, and, of course, has put a lot of resources towards uh, get, getting information to people who, are, who want to do better with their productions or learn how to do this. Uh, on the business end, what are, what are some of the tips? You know, obviously there is the live, that live show idea. Do you think there are other ways that people can uh, look to find an audience? Do you think it's worth trying to, for instance, um, put a lot of effort into, into building a following, um, using all the social networks, things like that? Well, I would begin at the end. When I go to write uh, or produce a show, I start with the listener's ear. 
and I work my way back to the speaker. Where are they listening to this? Are they jogging? How much time do they have to pay, to, to pay attention to my show? How long does it take to cook dinner? Right? How long does it take to do the commute? Where are they going to listen to this? How are they going to use this? And then I know, once I know what my audience is and what they want, then you give them what they want. And that means that I am working for the audience. I am not working for my artistic vision. Please crucify me now, all you artists out there. Okay? Um, I, I, there's content and there's distribution, and the content is determined by the distribution. So what do people do, and uh, can we provide that thing they want for them, such as there's the audiobook industry, very popular, made a lot of money. The vast bulk of it is in single narrator tellings of print novels. A very small portion of it is uh, full cast drama. Why is that? Okay, what is an audience looking for? When they hear Jim Dale doing Harry Potter, they go, okay, and he's doing a bunch of different voices, but it's still Jim Dale, and I'm following it, and it's, of course, it's this fabulously popular and amazing novel, and oh, it's still great. He's able to keep it together and keep the thread straight for them. Whereas if we did a dramatized version of, uh, of Harry Potter, uh, wait, now is that, wait, that's what's his name who can't be said? Oh, that's right, I recognize that voice. Okay, no, this must be Hermione over here. And uh, what's uh, Weasley saying? Right? It's harder to focus. And where are people listening? They're driving, <laughs> right? They're jogging. Um, they're peeling potatoes while that stuff is going on. The problem, there's a kind of a pollution problem uh, that's, that's gone on, a, uh, a, a noise pollution and that is either too much information, whether it's in a radio show or too many Twitter casts. Like, I really don't care what this person is doing right now. It's noise. If you can eliminate so much of the noise, if you can be as efficient as possible, both in how the money and the art, um, you stand a much better chance of being successful. Um, and, and you raise an interesting question, um, I think, that anyone who, who's going to write a radio, produce a radio script has to figure out, which is you know, how, how to write that script or how to approach um, telling that story um, so that it's clear in sound. And so do you think that's something that, uh, for example, like the Harry Potter uh, example, is that, you know, does, is that story fundamentally difficult to tell in sound because it has a dozen characters? Is it easier to tell a similar story with four characters, four voices, or do we go and adapt to those popular pieces? Um, we've sort of been spoiled by the visual. Uh, even when you would see stage plays in your little town 100 years ago, 200 years ago, there would only be so many actors and so much in the cast, and it was a condensed kind of form, uh, almost a kabuki-style uh, representation of life. As uh, film had a much broader canvas, it allowed us to, uh, to introduce many, many, many characters, and the audience has sort of been used to that. So when you have to adapt a book down to a movie, you have to pair out all sorts of characters. And when you have to adapt that down to radio, uh, since the audience is blind, uh, you have to further uh, pair things down in order for it to be clear. If you don't, 
you you will get tuned out. You will get noise and confusion. Wow, Tony, thanks so much. Um, a lot of food for thought. Um, one last question is about uh, what you've got going on right now. You say you're in tons of shows, 80 to 100 a year. Um, so there's quite a lot of projects if, if you want to plug. Is there a couple of things you want to plug on the show? Um, things you think you know listeners just have to hear? Um, well, I'm working on uh, right now, uh, one that is, I just had meetings on this week. It's uh, Ray Bradbury's uh, Leviathan 99. Uh, which is a uh, space version of Moby Dick, uh, produced by Norman Corwin, uh, directed by uh, Peggy Weber. Um, Kenneth Stangy's doing the music, I'm doing sound, and uh, we've got William Shatner as the Queequeg kind of character. He's a telepathic seven-foot spider. Um, and Sean Astin uh, from the Lord of the Rings films, he played uh, Sam, Frodo's pal. Uh, he is going to be the Ishmael character, and we have uh, Lloyd Nolan from um, the Mercury Theater and Hitchcock, and um, Samantha Agar and H.M. Winant. Uh, I'm thinking who else is in this show. I forget. Sky McDougal, I believe. That's coming up on uh, Norman Corwin's 99th birthday on May 3rd, uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to that one. It's, a, it's primarily a canned sound effect show for me, but it's always marvelous. Uh, t- to work with uh, old-time radio greats, and Ray Bradbury did radio far long, far before he ever got into sound, uh, into science fiction, and that he was writing uh, gags and stuff for Burns and Allen. Uh, he's an old-time radio, uh, as in long time, but of course his stuff is as modern as uh, you know, as the future. Uh, that's coming up. Um, I'm continuing with uh, a long-time relationship with the LA Theater Works people. Uh, they do a lot of provocative uh, shows, uh, and uh, I have my own solo shows that I do uh, where I tour around the country. Um, it's a sort of a sound effects and uh, behind the scenes and uh, in Hollywood um, kind of program. Uh, and then I continue to teach. I do workshops. I sell scripts and scores to people all over the world. Um, I've just gotten somebody who wants to do uh, a version of one of my shows uh, in Germany, but they need to translate it into German, and I'm going to have to negotiate rights as to uh, who owns that. It's a derivative work now. Um, stuff for the United Nations, too. I'm hoping to uh, to continue with that. I'll have to talk with you about uh, how the United Nations is using soap operas and radio drama to combat uh, HIV and the uh, uh, battle for women's rights uh, all across the third world. It's an amazing use of our medium to do good. Um, and also on my webpage, uh, Ruia Sonic, I offer lots of information for people who want to get started or learn something uh, about the medium. And I'm going to be expanding that, and certainly in the sound effects area there. Excellent. And uh, I, w- I would definitely encourage people to check out ruyasonic.com, R-U-Y-A, Sonic, S-O-N-I-C.com, um, resource that... Resource yes, that. It, means, it means dreams via sound. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, that's really what... It, Ruya is Arabic for dreams. Oh. And that's what I try to do is, is to use sound to let everybody dream together. Oh, brilliant. Well, uh, Tony, thanks so much for your time today. Okay. And that was Tony Palermo, and what else can I say? Ruyasonic.com, and check out Los Angeles Theater Works to hear some of his sound effects work. I also highly recommend Yuri Rosovsky's Sherlock Holmes Theater. 
Uh, Tony did the sound. The production itself is excellent. It uh, did win an Audi, and it was well-deserved for that uh, collection of some of the finest Sherlock Holmes you'll hear anywhere. Uh, meanwhile, you can hear more by checking out the blog and podcast, radiodramarevival.com. In addition to a handy link to subscribe to the podcast, you'll find previous episodes, scattered bits of audio drama news, articles, reviews, and the Malleus series by Chris Duker. And while you're there, you can join the conversation, leave a comment or two. Um, you can also find us on iTunes, search for Radio Drama Revival. And that wraps it up for this week. Until next time, keep your mind and your ears open. Thanks for tuning in and have a great week.